Welcome to the Pop Cult Podcast. Here are your hosts Ariana and Seth. I'm Seth. I'm Ariana. And this is the Pop Cult Podcast. Today we're going to be celebrating the anniversaries of two popular films. Uh, later we'll be talking about the 40th anniversary of the comedy Trading Places with Dan Aykroyd and uh, Eddie Murphy. Uh, but before that, we're going to be talking about the 30th anniversary of Last Action Hero, which came out on June 13th. So this will be the week uh, that it came out 30 years ago. Uh, Last Action Hero follows young Danny Madigan, played by Austin O'Brien, who takes comfort in watching action movies featuring the indestructible Los Angeles cop Jack Slater, played by Arnold Schwarzenegger. After being given a magic ticket by a theater manager, Danny is sucked into the screen and bonds with Slater when evil fictional villain Benedict, Game of Thrones' Charles Dance, gets his hands on the ticket and enters the real world, Danny and Jack must follow and stop him. Uh, so, Ariana, what did you think of Last Action Hero, and also what's your history with this movie? I mean, history is I saw as a child. Uh, we did not go to the theater to watch it. I think we ended up renting it, or it was like played on cable at some point. Mm-hmm. I remember as a child, I liked this movie because the relationship between uh, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger's character with um, Austin O'Brien's character, because it just like it was like a buddy movie, but then it's also sort of like a father figure and a child situation, like a uh, Burt Reynolds cop and a half, right? Basically, <laughs> uh, peak of both uh, movies side by side, equal in every way. Uh, no, but I like the film, and now as an adult, like, re-watching it, I'm like, it's a pretty decent film at the end of the day. Very ahead of its time. Yeah, I'm really surprised seeing that Rotten Tomatoes has it at 40%, when it should be maybe in the 60s. I don't feel like it's a really, it's not a rotten movie. Yeah, it's a movie that was far ahead of its time. Yeah. In the way it was sort of doing a meta-analysis of of specific film genre. If it came out today, I feel like it would be rated much higher by both critics and audiences. Yeah, I feel like this is the type of movie that, um, like, even though if it was made today, there's certain things that wouldn't connect the way it was during that time. Yeah, it's it's also, it's very much about a genre of film that isn't as popular anymore. But no, was insanely yeah. popular yeah. back then. Like you have to get some, like a little bit of an older dude, like Keanu Reeves kind of person who does like John Wick, like to do this. But he's he's not a Schwarzenegger then. man. Schwartz, the, watching this movie did remind me, like, oh, I totally get why people loved Arnold Schwarzenegger. There were lots of action movies and actors that were in them, but he has great charisma. He is yes. a movie star, like the yes. old classic definition of a movie star. That is Arnold Schwarzenegger. It's also, we forget how charismatic he is. Yeah. Because a lot of times, like, it's that's kind of how I feel anytime, like, if I think about his politics, it he pisses me off. Well, he's and a really the, weird Republican. Yes. But I think about his politics before, like, before the Trump era came in, he yeah. used to annoy the fuck out of me. But then, like, I saw snippets that apparently he's having, like, a documentary series coming out soon. Netflix, that's already, there's, like, a three-part thing called yes. Arnold, yeah. So, like, I saw a little clip that talks about Joseph, the son that he had, like, out of marriage. With the maid. Because he's like, oh, I don't like talking about it. Not because I'm not proud of my son, but because it opens he all feels the feels ashamed. 
Yeah, because apparently, like, his daughter wants nothing to do with the child. Meanwhile, his son is, like, is bonding with his half-brother. And Patrick Schwarzenegger. Yeah, and, like, we'll go on hikes with him and go hang out with him. But it's, like, he's, like, I'm proud of this kid. He looks like me. And he likes and that's the only reason he's proud of him. He's like, he looks like me! He likes the same things that his dad does. And he's, like... Well, he's like, like, he, he likes him as a person. Yeah. yeah, and he's, like, and I'm proud of him as a person. And it's, like, you hear him, and then you hear him talk about, like, racism and how, like, he's really against racism or against... Yeah, I don't know why he's a... Republican. And he just, I mean, money. <laughs> but you still be a Democrat. It's not like they really raise taxes on rich people anymore, it's, anyway. He's, it's again going back to how he's just charismatic. Yeah. He's the type of person that you're just like, like, in a dumb way, like you're like, oh, I could probably hang out with him and have a chill time. Well, he does seem like that's why I think he was successful as a politician, maybe not policy wise, but as getting elected in California is, yeah, he. Whether it's an act or whether it's real, he makes you feel like he is a person that you can relate to. Yeah. Even though he's this, but he's also this larger than life, like comic book figure too. Yeah, like the the shape of him, like uh, like how tall the, the he roles is, he plays, the roles that he plays. But like, I think it's interesting to also look at the context of Last Action Hero. Is this comes out in '93, the last feature film where Arnold was the star was 1991 Terminator 2, which I would say arguably, but not very easy to argue against, the best Arnold Schwarzenegger film ever made. Like, most successful, the movie that defined him. And he'd been in movies before that. He'd been in, like, Kindergarten Cop, Total Recall. That's all pre-Terminator 2. But in my mind, Terminator 2 always feels like it is the first thing. Yeah. Because it so solidified the image of Arnold. And so, like, it dominated the box office in 91, uh, critically acclaimed. It established James Cameron because, you know, James Cameron had done Alien. He'd done the first Terminator. But Terminator 2 really established James Cameron's like, oh, this is a director who's pushing film technology farther. And that's what he was going to he become, right? Yeah. He's it's... the guy who's it's his movies maybe story-wise aren't great, but it's the the technicality of it. And with Arnold, it was like, this guy is sort of the distillation of 1980s action hero into a single person. More so than Sylvester Stallone, more than Bruce Willis, than Jean-Claude Van Damme was around the 90s and like nowhere close to Arnold. Like he is in a world unto his own. I think in a weird way, there are like certain films that before this film came out, when you talk about it, like it's it's as if like Arnold became the guy that you wanted to protect you. Like it's he's not he and we're not talking in the Pedro Pascal realm where he finds a child and like takes care of them becomes a father figure. It's like oh he's been assigned to protect you. You think about like Kindergarten Cop, you think about like Terminator, and you think about this film. It's like these films of him coming in being like oh god, but just at the end of the day like wanting to protect this child. Because I was looking at his filmography to kind of get a sense of the effect of Last Action Hero. So I would say his starring debut even though he's in some movies before conan the barbarian 1982 yeah so he does conan the barbarian conan the destroyer the terminator cameo and red sonya commando raw deal which i don't know much about uh predator the predator. running predator <laughs> the running man uh red heat where he played a russian 
and with the teamed up with James Belushi. Uh, you have Twins, followed by Total Recall, which comes out the same year as Kindergarten Cop. The next year, you have Terminator 2 Judgment Day, and then a two-year gap, and then you have Last Action Hero. And then after Last Action Hero, you have James Cameron's True Lies, which was successful, but I don't feel... When people talk about James Cameron, I don't really hear people bring True Lies up that much anymore. No. Uh, I feel like it's Jamie Lee Curtis Yes, True Lies. Like everybody, it's almost like everybody forgot how hot she was <laughs> and, and like forgot and then true lies came out and he's like oh she's still hot guys and so then same year true lies comes out he's in junior which is an attempt to recapture that twins magic with danny devito and it yeah. doesn't work uh two years later he's in eraser oh, yeah. same year that jingle all the way comes out then in 97 batman and robin and i think that's kind of the moment where People are not betting on Schwarzenegger. However, he has movies every year or every other year up until Terminator 3, Rise of the Machines, 2003. That's a flop. And then there's a seven-year gap until he his comeback movie is The Expendables. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. So I feel like last action here, when you look at where it sits in his career, it does mark the first moment the audience goes, huh, maybe I don't like all this guy's movies. Yeah, because everything that comes after is a mixed bag, but everything before it is pretty solid. Give a few here and there that are uh, considered like classic 80s movies. Right. Mm -hmm. So the last action hero, it's also like the nature of the movie is it's a commentary on Arnold Schwarzenegger as an action movie star. Yeah. Which is insane. Like for someone to come up with that idea at that time. While he is still insanely hot, that would be, I can't even think of like an equivalent today for an actor or actress, because I don't think anyone is at that level of fame that Arnold is, because everything is so fragmented now and every there's like very niche kind of thing and ho the hollywood machine kind of churns out disposable actors constantly yeah i feel like that i and it's funny because i think there has been actors that are complaining that there's no longer like huge stars that it would be like the motive of watching a movie would be because of that actor it is now the motive to watch movie is because characters ip characters yeah so you, or you want to watch the next part in the franchise yeah and so like it's i in a lot of ways it's because it's like it's a mix between streaming services it's the overabundance of selection that you have and not everybody knows all the same faces yes but it, back in like 93 everybody knew who arnold schwarzenegger was it would have been very hard to find someone and maybe even like amish people i'm sure <laughs> knew some of them did like who he was um and that's why this movie is so – it's like the perfect movie to make at the perfect time. And then for it to just be this – I mean, it wasn't a bomb. It made back its money, but it didn't make as much money as they wanted it to make sort of yeah. a thing. And critics didn't like it. I read, looked up some uh, reviews, and I saw that uh, the uh, – there were people that kind of said that it was a good idea, but it was half-baked. And I mean, I can kind of agree with that. It does feel like there's some connective tissue that's missing that pulls everything together and really, like, makes it cohesive. It's like a lot of little moments that are really clever, but they don't necessarily all gel by the end of the movie. Well, by the end of the movie, I think what happens is... 
So bad guy finds the ticket and starts basically pulling all these bad uh, guys from. Well, he only movie. pulls one, right? But the idea is that he's gonna pull more I villains from movies. He pulls out one. Who was it that he pulled out? Well, he pulls out um the Ripper, the villain from the previous Jack Slater movie. Okay, yeah, he pulls out. But him. he's talking about Go pulling ahead. out more. At the end, they have Ian McKellen has a cameo as Death from uh, Bergman. Falls out a little bit. It's just such a weird turn in that moment. Yeah, it's a weird turn because suddenly it's him that makes the option of coming out, and he is not confused by anything that has occurred. He's just and sort of like he's he still has the powers of death, which is confusing because Arnold doesn't have the same abilities in the real world that he does in the movie world. Yes, and so that is a little bit confusing because like he touches someone who's like smoking. And that person dies on the spot. Like he's able to tell, um, like Danny, like, oh no, you're fine. You're gonna die when you're like, uh, like old age. But your friend is maybe gonna die. So it is. He's like, not a character discovering the real world operates by different rules. Yeah, because like, be and that's the whole Jack Slater thing is we see him in his environment, and then the the interesting part is okay. Now let's pull him out of an action movie world into our world. And watch him navigate and try to figure out how do I do this? Yeah, and I think it's also like they do do this thing of like once Jack is in the real world, he's kind of like really like fucked, like mentally kind of fucked up with this idea that like that he is not real, that he's been through all this pain for entertainment. Well, and the fact that Arnold plays himself, who then Jack Slater finds he really doesn't like that person, but that's Arnold playing a character talking about himself which is such a like that's a pretty profound thing to put it in like an eight and like early 90s action movie this whole thing of oh i'm a character but the guy who plays me is kind of a shallow vapid person well, i don't really like that about being like he doesn't like him because it's sort of like you're the reason these films keep going on you keep making these sequels and i have to suffer even more by every take okay yeah, that's another thing is like the whole uh theme of trauma because it's clear that Jack Slater is traumatized by the death of his son in Jack Slater 3. Yeah. But because of the way the movie world works, he's not allowed to process that trauma. He just has to keep going. And it's by entering our world where there isn't a movie plot pushing him forward and these big, you know, explosive action moments that he, and it's a little boy who pulls him into this world uh, and i mean it's clear that like danny is supposed to be a parallel to his son yeah like i there's like for example there's a moment that when um danny gets home it is like two or four o'clock in the morning his mom is scolding him and then he's like oh by the way here's like this person like he's a cop and the mom doesn't like isn't like oh this is arnold schwarzenegger at all like it's like she's the one person in the world that apparently doesn't know yeah that's, i did think that was weird because i'm like if that man showed up and i'm going what is arnold schwarzenegger doing here or just being like if maybe like her you look a lot like that actor yeah, yeah. Like, and like it seemed like there was like some flirtation going on so i think part of it is like there's so much that they're giving you that it's when you slow down and then like analyze the film it's like well why didn't jack ever have a moment just being like oh well things are really bad here i could just be a cop here or like this or world like, needs someone like me to help fix it yeah someone like that where it's like hey i really like your mom and i think she's great like have him at least be tempted to stay there 
only to be like oh hey no like your daughter needs you or like yeah it's the whole him leaving his world and then eventually going back like the only reason he goes back is because he gets shot in the real world and he's gonna die but it's so he's not going back to his world out of a choice it's out of necessity yeah and i does i do think that undercuts his arc as a character yeah i think it would have maybe been interesting but again this is just me thinking about oh they go to play the film and it turns out midway to the movie Arnold is gone from the film and nobody understands why. And that would be funny to watch like the actors walk, like his boss, uh, who I think was the chief of police and lethal weapon, mm-hmm. uh, like going or asking where Slater is and being very confused. And yeah, feels or, like nothing's progressing. Like, nothing's maybe, getting done. Like, oh, the film's cut out in the real world from that point where he leaves because it's like, oh, the film is like undone because he's no longer there because of the magic of film. Is it supposed to be like, there are certain things in the rules. It's also one of those film, uh, movies that it like, if they were to tell me, oh, we're going to make this into a one or two season plot, I would not be against it because they're- Yeah, it could work as a stream. Yeah, Last Action Hero is a streaming series. Yeah. That would be like, great. Be like uh, the turn of events being like, what happens when a character is pulled out is like, are all the films affected or can you pull multiple of them out? Well, because you could even do a spotlight on characters that aren't Jack Slater, like his daughter in the story. And sort of like, what's going on with her? Like, how does she process her brother's death? The fact that she was, it's supposed to be, it's her first film in the series. And they've just introduced her, yeah. So like, it could be also her being conflicted at the fact that she wasn't in the first three films. And she has no memory of this brother and like, but you know there's photos of him around the house and my dad talks about him but like why don't i remember him and sort of like a thing. she sees photos of him and but it's just like it feels off like what is going on kind of thing and um like it's again it's still very very smart yeah it's just unfortunately if we were to be like oh be nowadays like i said it'd probably be a ryan reynolds kind of character Ugh. that they would push on to us to just be like hey guys let's wink at the and camera. i feel like there's I can't stand Ryan Reynolds. I think he was fine in small doses, but now they've kind of he's too much back on him. Like he's dead Deadpool and everything. And I don't like that. He's not an actor, he's a personality. And I mean Arnold, you could argue, wasn't necessarily an actor, but a personality. But that's a much more interesting personality to me. Still applying that character's personality into the film. The Jack Slater is definitely not him. Yeah, he like the charisma doesn't ooze out of him when he's playing Terminator. Like he's not like being super chummy, and then like in True Lies, he's like it is like this. It's still funny to me because Arnold Schwarzenegger in the films is an all-American man who is not American, (laughs) an Austrian immigrant with a very thick accent. Nobody ever goes like. How and he, he doesn't even look like an all-American guy. He is this bodybuilder. Like, yeah. he's about as far from the average American man as you could possibly get. that's the image that they wanted to impose upon Well, himself. And that's why he worked in the 80s is this is the dream of an American man to be this guy. Yeah, and, like, he's also a guy that's sort of, like, he would probably laugh about it because it's like, you know how much time I spent in the gym? Or he'd probably like, find himself as, like, oh, I'm just not take it as seriously as so many other people did who, yeah, like, loved the like, movies. It, Again, it's like one of those films that's like you like I'm sure for a lot of people it's deeply nostalgic. I think the only time I've ever felt deeply nostalgic is when we were watching like Adam's Family too. Like there's something about it that I could feel like that hit of like, oh yes. 
but it's still a good film. Like this uh, last well, action uh, hero is still pretty good. And we recently just watched uh, Temple of Doom, Last Crusade, and Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, which I think is interesting. That then we watched Last Action Hero because Harrison Ford is clearly he's he kind of bleeds over into that action movie thing while still being a legit actor in other stuff. Yeah. Uh, and one thing I noted because we were able to kind of watch the progression of the sort of action adventure movie over time is there seemed to be the scale was so much smaller in those movies as a child, you don't necessarily realize that, but as an adult, you realize, Oh, like the scale of temple of doom is very small. Like the geography of where they're going for most of the movie, very small. Uh, Last crusade. It's a little more grand, but still, not that much. You get to Kingdom of the Crystal Skull and it's exhausting how many places they go and how much time they spend in those places. And so then I think about like Last Action Hero and it does a a perfect thing of not exhausting you with going everywhere. There's basically three places in the movie that is the world of Jack Slater, the movie theater, and Danny's house. And maybe you could say New York, right? Yeah. As general. And so it's very localized. It's basically two cities, New York and L.A. And it's a movie that's not just about – it's about contrasting those places of yeah. Los Angeles for people means this. New York for people means this. Mm -hmm. And both of these places are probably the most iconic cities in America. And what does that tell you about America? I think there's a lot in this movie about the American psyche and the American soul and what's going on. Well, like, Danny has this whole thing when he's trying to convince Jack, uh, like, was it Jack or Jake? Jack. Jack. He's trying to be like, hey, this is a movie, this is a movie, this is a movie. And he's like, this is, like, first time he walks into the police department, he's like, this is the nicest police department I've ever been into. Like, the one that I was into is, is shit. He starts arguing about being like the women here are way too attractive when well, they're all like supermodels wearing insane clothing it's like uh there's no normal looking well, like average looking well, women there's literally an animated detective cat yeah it's like, <laughs> like, that's weird and they're like what are you talking about he's just always been he's here. a veteran on the force it's like um it's danny trying to be like this is not reality but he's also trying to be like, and because it's not reality, this is a great, this is amazing. We can do whatever we want. Kind I don't of have thing. to be afraid here. I don't have to be scared. And it's just well, like. And then I, when Benedict, Charles Dance's character, arrives in the real world and starts to understand that you can kill someone in front of other people. And those people will just turn their head because they don't want to be involved. Especially like within the New York area. Yeah, and in the conclusion, he goes, in this world, the bad guys win. Like that's a quote from him. And it's and he's not wrong. Yeah, and it's like, yeah, he's evil, but he has figured out that major difference between the world of the movies and the world that people actually live in is yeah, in the real world, there are no Jack Slaters who miraculously save the day. Or happen to have like his, you know, gun can stop the 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 car from fleeing because like when we mix it into reality when he is shooting the gun and like shooting pointing to where like benedict has gotten into the taxi it doesn't do anything well i want to talk about those contrasts because that was one thing that now having watched a lot more movies since i last saw this i really appreciated john mctiernan the director uh he also directed die hard he directed yeah. predator 
so this guy knew his action movies. He also directed Hunt for Red October. Mm-hmm. So like this is a guy who he is like peak action movie director for this time. So who better to make a movie analyzing action movies than a guy who kind of made the most iconic action movies of the era? And I loved how the cinematography from inside the Jack Slater world is completely different than the cinematography in New York. In uh, Jack Slater's world, it's a lot of crane shots, dolly shots, tracking shots, uh, steady cam. But then you get to, um, or maybe not as much steady cam, but you get to New York, and that's where you have steady cam handheld shots. It's yeah. a lot messier. It's a lot dirtier the way the camera is working. And you're talking about the difference between the police stations. Like there is this conscious effort to constantly contrast yeah. one element from another in these two worlds. And it, and they both have a texture to them, I guess is how I would describe it, yeah. that makes each world feel so dramatically different from each other. Yeah, I think, um, and that I feel as if also directors don't do this anymore. They don't make a film where they're like, oh, I've made a ton of action films. Now I'm going to go make something that's going to be a satire or like a comedy. Or have fun with the genre. Uh, uh, the genre. Because it feels as if now the directors that we have take themselves so serious that like they're just never going to be able to make fun of those. And the director that I'm thinking exclusively is a guy that did uh, Joker. Like I, oh like Todd he, Fields, he would not uh, be able to make fun of himself because when he and the thing is he should be able to because he started in comedy. Like Joker was a pivot for him, and he's the kind of guy who probably could make a superhero movie that was like the last action hero of superhero movies. Like you know, taking the piss out of it, kind of mocking he, it a little. He found himself because his whole idea of what is funny is degrading to women or yeah. people of color. When I was thinking, like, like, if we think in big directors now. Who don't make like personal art films? Uh, who like who, like who directed Super Mario? Who directed Sonic? Who directed uh, Spider Verse? Who directed? I know who directed The Flash, Andy Muschietti, and I don't like him. I don't think he's a very good. I think he's a fine studio director, I guess, but he's not interesting. Like who directs these movies that we watch now? Well, I, I think it's also like I mean, even Barry, Kaika Watiti, like pinpointed it about being like, oh, the next like big Marvel movie is going to be directed by this indie. <laughs> like, yeah, uh, they person. they bring in people who directed like one decent indie movie, but then dictate how to make the movie to them. Yes, and so they're not really learning how to make movies; they're just kind of the manager on set of the movie yeah they're just applying what it is that it's been pre-made for them and they don't get to do anything interesting and it's like it's, every once in a while they kind of like let sam raimi off his chain and let him make something i think it's sort of like with sam, like sam raimi feels like the one of the few directors that is able to do that because he has a clear stamp of what his style is. And that's why, yeah, I thought and it was... Also because it's like, he's old enough to be like, no, fuck this. How many times have we read about directors who are like, gonna make a film and they leave because they're not able to make it the way they want it to make it? Well, and with Raimi, that's what I, I always thought it was weird that people acted so turned off by uh, Doctor Strange. And I guess some of them it was because of what was done with uh, Scarlet Witch, which is understandable. But in terms of like tone and aesthetics... I was like, it's a, directed by Sam Raimi. And guess what? 
there's a big chunk of it that feels like a Sam Raimi movie. That's what movies are supposed to be. Well, They're not supposed to be like the, and that's why like this movie, Last Action Hero, it, when I go, oh, this is the guy who directed Predator and, and Die Hard, I'm like, oh yeah, I can see that. It's It's got that kind of like, and then it was, you know, Shane Black had a hand in uh, rewriting the script. And you can feel all those elements when you know who those people are. You're like, oh, yeah. So it's it's of its time, but it still feels smart. Yeah, with Shane Black, you could probably see how he was like, we need to talk about the reality. And how a lot of ways, like, Danny is supposed to be reflecting on the audience themselves. About how we feel a certain comfort with the action film. And the wish fulfillment, the, yeah. The wish fulfillment, which could, if we were to make it now, it would probably have to be like a Marvel-esque thing yeah. of bringing a superhero into reality and then realizing I don't have my powers kind of thing and having to uh, them to deal with it. It's, But it's still lighthearted in a lot of ways because I feel like there are shows that, for example, the boys that I've never seen, but people are like, oh, this is like this is supposed to be the dark side of like how superheroes are. Um, when it's like supposed to bring into the gritty reality of how horrible life is, like the uh, Netflix version of The Punisher or Daredevil, when they're trying to make it more realistic, like grounded, quote, more grounded. But this is more interesting for me because it's like as a person who watches films or is it has certain comforts in fiction and i'm talking in fiction it's the ability to turn off your brain so the anxiety quiets down for a little bit and forget to you know to not be constantly thinking of oneself which is exhausting because you're nitpicking yourself all the time or thinking about how you can do better it's kind of sad that we don't get things like this yeah, anymore yeah yeah because it's yeah i feel like if this was made as a movie now it would probably be like a direct to netflix thing yeah it, it would be, be they, you could you could feel the budget uh being cut as you yeah, watch the movie like it, it would only be good if say we made it into a series like it will not be good as a movie because we can't make it as smart as we want to or as interesting and they made it interesting like you said with the visual effects with the fact that danny goes around like really like pompous but when like we're watching within the first film danny's in a horrible situation like he's cutting school because he's gonna go watch films when he gets home his mom is working late and she tells him like keep the doors locked open and, and he gets he assaulted by a burglar yeah like, assaulted by a burglar like he gets beat up so he's like of course he wants to lose himself in a world that like there's a clear winner well there's a guy who fights the bad guys and wins every time yeah, and that's something that danny doesn't experience and so danny realizes through the film even though he's not big and tough he has to outsmart them in a different way because like benedict at some point pushes him over and danny starts crying and like at first you're thinking, oh no, it's bad kid acting, and that he's complaining that his his arm is broken. But it turns out his arm was not broken. He just faked out. Yeah. Like Benedict to be distracted to not pay attention to him, so he can finally do the blow that he needs to in order for Benedict to not be aware. But yeah, I thought it was. I think it's a movie that didn't get a fair shake when it came out. It came out the second weekend that Jurassic Park was in theaters. And that movie just 
dominated the 93 box office in a way that few movies do yeah jurassic park was hard to compete against because i remember when it was coming out like my cousins who were a little older than me were trying to convince me that the dinosaurs were real and um like it was like non-stop talking about it at school because kids at a certain point will be obsessed with dinosaurs and that hit like at the perfect time yes and then it's also like they were doing new special effects so everybody was hyped up about it well i know john mctiernan has said that he one of the things he blames the failure of the movie on is the sort of hollywood hype machine particularly in that the marketing did not sell this movie to the public for what it actually was and I think that's very true because I remember at the time I had an idea, oh, this is just like an Arnold Schwarzenegger action movie with this kid or something. And then we waited because we didn't go to the theater much when I was a kid. Uh, we rented the v- video from the store when it finally came out. And then I had a totally different experience and I was confused. Uh, yeah, I would have been 12 years old at the time. And I was just kind of like, oh, it's this kind of a movie. Okay, that's not what I thought it was going to be. And I have a feeling a lot of people were... Uh, in have that mindset um do you think people should go back and revisit last action hero now yes yeah i think it's i think it's a movie that does things media now is trying to do and it actually does it like in a really clever fun way Trading Places follows upper crust executive Lewis Winthorpe III, played by Dan Aykroyd, and down-and-out hustler Billy Ray Valentine, played by Eddie Murphy. These men are the subjects of a bet by successful brokers Mortimer and Randolph Duke. As employees of the Dukes, Winthorpe is framed by the brothers for a crime he didn't commit, with the siblings then installing the street-smart Valentine in his position. When Winthorpe and Valentine uncover the scheme, they set out to turn the tables on the Dukes. Uh, this film was directed by John Landis, uh, came out in 1983 and is celebrating its 40th anniversary, came out June 8th, 1983. So pretty close, 10 days away from its uh, 40th anniversary. So, Ariana, what did you think of Trading Places and what's your history with this film? Um, I've seen it in pieces. Mm-hmm. I'd never seen it completely until last night. Mm-hmm. I thought it was good i think it's just like it's one part of me is like there's it's always like these kind of films are always on the edge of being like leftist or pro worker until it isn't yeah it just kind of like loses it at a certain point yeah and i think it's also there is a lack of character development to a certain degree or at the least getting to know the characters a little bit better especially valentine Eddie Murphy's character. We don't know anything about him. We're just running on charisma for him. Yes, he's basically Eddie Murphy. Yes. That's all you need to know is, oh, that's Eddie Murphy. And so, There's no character there. And it's like, it, there are times it's just sort of like, what the fuck? Because I'm thinking about how, like, so Valentine at some point is talking to the Dukes. This is like almost towards halfway of the film. Um, so he's working for them at that point. Yes. Yeah. And they're... There, I forgot what it was about, but he's like, start saying like, no, you really need to be hard on people. You need to like, um, that people really need to work for what they're given. But this dude was just given two days ago this job, 
an $80,000 year salary, which is a lot of money considering the year that it came out. And he just sort of naturally has the ability to do the job somehow. And and it's like this weird thing where he's like, no, you have to work hard, which is almost like saying no matter what happens when you are a black poor person, eventually you're just going to become just like them. Mm. Once you're given all these things, there are a lot of there's a well, lot it's like of that's nods. the poison of capitalism. Yeah, there's a lot of nods about it, and then there's just other stuff that you're just kind of like, huh? What? I I do want to point out two lines from the movie that because I remember my friend Brent in college would watch this movie when it would come on Comedy Central every once in a while, and there were two lines that always cracked him up. There's the great scene where they are giving their uh, butler his Christmas bonus, Ezra, and he give, they give him a whole $5. <laughs> and uh, it's Mortimer Duke chimes in that half of that $5 is mine. And Ezra, in just the nicest way, goes, thank you, Mr. Mortimer. <laughs> and then under his breath goes, asshole (laughs) and that's a really great that's just like a great moment and then whenever they're trying to explain um securities i think to uh valentine and they use like lettuce bacon and tomato and bread and uh it was orange juice yeah yeah. and uh randolph duke says uh that's everything you need to make a bacon lettuce and tomato sandwich (laughs) And then Eddie Murphy just does the whole fourth wall break and just looks in the camera like, yeah, no shit. Uh, So, like, those were funny. And what I noticed about both those moments, those are moments where the black character is able to mock the white character. Yes. And that's why it's funny, because it's subverting uh, the way things operate in, you know, the real world, especially at the time, was like, you were just, you had to be very thankful for the shit that you were handed. Uh, It's, I kind of agree with you. It's a movie that has funny moments but I would argue loses a lot of steam in the third act where like the scheme they come up with on the train ends up depending on this bit of deus ex machina involving a gorilla that feels like something out of a shitty like three stooges short or something where like they have this whole plan and they execute the plan but if it hadn't been for this random gorilla being transported on an Amtrak train, and someone wearing a uh, yes, outfit. it's so coincidental in a way that like it undercuts the cleverness that could have been there. One of the things I noted, like as the movie was starting, was there's a certain feel to a type of comedy from this era that felt, and maybe it was just because I was a kid, but it still kind of feels that way. That it's like a little more elevated of a comedy. That it's not just a cheap gag that there's actually thought that went into the writing of the script that actors are actually good actors that um like elmer bernstein does the music and so it has this orchestral score it's not just pop music of the day and so it made you feel like oh this is like a this is like a legitimate movie right this is a a comedy but it's also like a real movie it's not like something like porkies or something where it's just a sex comedy and it like it, it centers on the wit of Eddie Murphy as a comedian. I think Dan Aykroyd pales in comparison to Eddie Murphy and teaming up with him in this movie did not do Aykroyd any favors because it, yeah, I think he he's does playing stuck up pretty well, but I think it's, it's hard to watch him being so stuck up. Cause there's, 
I think in the film they didn't want him to be that redeemable, but they wanted him to be like love can't hate him, yeah. Around Jamie Lee Curtis when there needed to be a little bit more conflict between and them. Yeah, their whole relationship made zero sense to me. Like the w- direction it develops in. Yeah. I just don't know why she would fall for someone like him. And he yeah, it's just it there was a lot of shorthand happening where we aren't getting things and I mean, I don't need everything spelled out for me, but especially when it comes to character relationships, you need to make that make sense and be believable. Everything else, you can have ludicrous plots, whatever, but the interactions between characters and the way those arcs develop need to follow a path of logic, yeah. even in a comedy, and especially in a comedy that's attempting to be something a little bigger and better. I think that the, the, the issue that, the com- and that this movie for me has is like towards the end and what it is is that like yes the brothers make a bet but we're in the film it's trying to underline that these brothers are bad people for having done with the thing that they're doing right now and so there has to be a plot of them getting revenge which another film i think within this time uh, time would have winked and said no worry guys those two guys are secretly angels of some sorts like god bestowed them this power because I, I feel like there's a there were a lot of like weird comedies where it was like hey uh, god is actually the one leading this and you're gonna have some weird conversations with him or it was like a supernatural element to go like well you needed to learn a lesson well that was the gorilla on the train <laughs> yeah and it's just it's and so you get to the point that like they're on the train which I feel like it just should have been public transportation. Well, and that also felt like the end of the movie. Like that should yeah. have been the final because it was they all came together. They have these costumes. It's an elaborate plot, but then the movie keeps going. Yeah, and I think it that scene should have just been cut shorter. Yeah, it was just too much and going it on. Wasn't that because funny? Like, the things that like I liked about the film were like the the service people were not beloved to these kids to the rich characters in fact they were annoyed by them they were like you've wasted my time and efforts and you don't pay me enough or i am not given enough respect and again there was a lack of development because we spent so much time with dan Ackroyd's character finding out how he works mm-hmm. like we spent we find like him talking to his girlfriend how he has this really nice life and then uh, Valentine, played by Eddie Murphy, we just see, oh, um, he tries to scam people. He pretends to be like a, a paraplegic blind war veteran. So, like, yeah. It's not, we don't see him actually with a person, with anyone who cares for him. He has no relationships no, with anyone. Like, yeah. Oh, no, he's a showboat, and we have to show, like, people are just going to use him for his money at the end of the day. And it's a movie that clocks in at two hours, and I think, like, okay, you want to make a two-hour comedy, then we also need to develop valentine's background and know who is he where does he come from they could have just cut all that train sequence which was dumb and still like it just just have them steal the orange futures in like a quicker clever way and just move on eddie murphy's character being shown to be kind of a con man already and maybe him having like brought in a friend that would help him do stuff and then ophelia turns out to be a little bit more savvier but it's that stretches out too long where it's supposed to be teehee the bad guy is gonna get sexually assaulted by a gorilla and also also if we had cut that scene short we might have not had dan Aykroyd in blackface 
which was just why are you doing this it took because it took all the sentiments the movie might have been trying to say about race Mm -hmm. and gender and like labor and class and all this and it was like flushing it down the toilet when dan Aykroyd comes up with shoe polish on his face well dan Aykroyd is giving the dukes all these checks to sign out to people that they give money to and at one point, one of the brothers goes, geez, we pay a lot of our workers, like, a lot of money. And Tanner Grid's the character says, yeah, there's not really a workaround minimum wage. Yeah. And, like, it's supposed to be this, and the bet is supposed to be, like, oh, well, if you give someone a chance, they could probably succeed in the well, job. Because the bet was, like, what influences a person more, their genetics or their environment? Yes. And so, and I don't feel like they use that the premise of the bet just puts the two main characters in their situations, but we don't really explore from the Duke brothers perspective, what like their observations at like, it's why are they not? I mean, I would think, why aren't they like tracking Dan Aykroyd's character to kind of see like, is he able to bring himself back while and is Valentine able to maintain his spot? Well, it's because they have already like known that they've ruined him to the point because well, and is, like with Ophelia. But do you, uh, it's one thing I think the movie doesn't necessarily make clear is I had to kind of infer that one of the reasons they were getting rid of him was because he noticed the Clarence Beaks checks and made a comment about it. And I thought as we were watching it, because like you, I'd only seen this movie in bits and pieces. I thought, oh, they're going to have some conversation about... Ooh, do you think Winthorpe's a real smart guy? He he's noticed the check. We got to do something about it. And then, like, well, you know, it'd be a perfect time for our little experiment, right? That would have been like a logical progression of those ideas. Yeah. But it doesn't. And so I don't know if that's what I'm supposed to infer is going on, and they're not saying it out loud, but that would have made a lot more sense than yeah, the way it plays out. Verbally indicated, yeah. like if it's just like, well, he's asking too many questions, and then one of them distracts it by being like, let's make a bet. And I think it's also like the parts that are really good are like for example of them figuring out about the bet and then them saying we would never like have valentine do it because he is black but then the punch of the gut is when valentine realizes the bet is only for one dollar that's how little they valued his and winthrop's life yeah Yeah. so that's when the, the two come together and decide to work together and i almost i just really wish there was also a little bit of them like bonding yeah, because it's just like the, he – it's Winthrop gets injured, and they bring him back to Winthrop's old house where Valentine is living, and Ophelia's yeah. there. And then when he wakes up, and they have that like whole fight, and Valentine's trying to explain things. But yeah, that's it. Then all of a sudden, they're buddies, and they, yeah. they have a plan. And like that was – you know him waking up talking about how he thought it was a horrible dream that would have been a great moment to have a conflict where he says something about ophelia and ophelia can go well fuck you guys i'm out but you still owe me money kind of shit and uh it's it's kind of weird it just feels like they it's the kind of thing that would happen in the comedies of the 80s is they need the plot to go to a place so they the characters are just friends now Yes. And, and we, we, we don't, we're not going to try to explain it. And then it's also sort of like Ophelia, uh, again, Jamie Lee Curtis, she is running on charisma and running on because she's got a great body and they have to show her topless a few times. Way too much, I feel. And yes. It <laughs> it's was, a lot. It was like uncomfortable. It was, it was bordering it didn't quite hit there but it was bordering on exploitative at a certain yeah, point like and i'm sure like she was fine with it and it's just sort of like but it was just getting to the point that it was just like all she was was the sex worker 
who just happens to give a chance to this rich dude she really doesn't have much character no and it's just like well you know i like got she was like i got maybe three more years to work on my back before i just retire like she what she's trying to do is get as much money so she doesn't have to work and i feel like they could have explored that more like what is she gonna do when she gets the money like what's her dream what's her plan ask her and it would have been an interesting thing that he's a money guy like had he maybe she has a business idea and like oh he could help her with that or just being like well how much are we like them having maybe an argument about how is she going to live on x amount of money and so they bond not over the potential of them fucking at some point but that like he's oh you're someone who needs my help and then maybe there's an arc for winthrop is why don't I give financial advice to poor people like as a pro bono thing? Cause I have plenty of money. And then that way, you know, I can help other people or achieve their like, dreams kind of a thing. How hard it is for her to yeah. like live the life that she's living because this guy was shown in the first film, like he gets waking up with like food, like someone like his Butler brings food to the bed, shaves him, helps him get dressed. Like this is he's a man, story. baby. Like he's, <laughs> being taken care of but with this idea that he's going to make money for these people like it would have been interesting for him to soften up because he starts seeing how hard her life is so when he meets eddie murphy yeah he's angry for a few minutes but then when eddie starts like explaining his life he's going to be like oh shit like you're you're just like ophelia like ophelia too and i'm like i'm so sorry like let's work together to do something but it It doesn't do that and i think the result is it feels like a very mean movie like towards the end it's just oh they bankrupt the duke brother and that's it who which deserve it they deserve it but (laughs) But it's like they don't learn anything discounting the fact that they've already said that they employ multiple people who they like give minimum wage so you're saying that those people are like fucked and like they employ black servants except for coleman and like they're just on an island with sweaters on. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's like a typical '80s movie. Is oh, we won the movie, and now we're on a beach, and we're all happy. And the butler is happy because he has a butler. Yeah, he gets to boss someone around, which is like that's not really the lesson we should be learning. Like, wasn't that the problem in the first place? Uh, and then I mean, it was also directed by John Landis, who is a human piece of shit. <laughs> Uh, and for listeners who might not know, John Landis was directing a segment of the Twilight Zone movie, I think in like 83, 82. And people on set verified that he was pushing special effects and crew members to levels that were beyond acceptable and being very cruel about it. And it was a result of his style of directing. There was a stunt involving a helicopter and explosions. And it ended up killing uh, Vic Morrow, the actor. And two child actors that were uh, on set, it decapitated one of the children and Morrow. And Landis kept trying to claim it was an accident. Uh, He and four other people were charged with like involuntary manslaughter. I think they were acquitted, but it's still pretty well accepted that if he he did violate like California child labor laws, he was just a generally shitty person. I know Steven Spielberg had been friends of his. And I think after that incident, they he just cut Landis off. Was a helicopter guy? Was he alive or did he die? Uh, I don't know. Because like you were saying that the helicopter, he's like a Vietnam veteran and was like, this is too... Yeah, like there were people on set telling Landis that things he was asking for were unacceptable and he just ignored them and was like he was going to do what he wanted. Uh, He's also the director of the Blues Brothers movie, which I would like Blues Brothers better than this. What do you think? 
Um, I think the Blues Brothers is as good. I, I was more I mean, entertained by the Blues yeah, Brothers I, than I was trading places. Yeah, and I was only making the bluff kind of thing because it's just sort of like I I think about I just saw Jim Belushi. Um, I think of it as like his brother. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the Blues Brothers did a good thing about exposing people to black music. And, well, then, and it was a it was a movie that. I accepted that its plot was so paper thing because that was the point of the movie. It was just a music showcase yeah. and stunts. That was it. This movie is trying to have a plot and all that. And I don't think it works ultimately. I think what it is is like there are all these good parts that are ultimately erased by the bad icky parts. Yeah. And so would you recommend people revisit Trading Places 40 years later? Maybe. I would say there are better Eddie Murphy movies if that's yeah. what you're going to watch it for. Coming to America, sadly, also directed by John Landis. But in but, terms of Eddie Murphy Landis movies, it's probably the best yeah, one. Yeah, and Eddie Murphy had more of a say in that film. Yeah, that was more of an Eddie Murphy. It was He probably hired Landis out of pity, is what I'm guessing. <laughs> but yeah, I would say Coming to America if you really want to laugh uh, at an Eddie Murphy movie. Well, that was the Pop Cult Podcast for this week. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Check out our show notes for links to any relevant reviews on our website, popcult.blog. Also, make sure to subscribe to be notified when new episodes of our podcast are up, wherever it is you listen. If you do visit popcult.blog right now, you're going to find we're in the middle of our big Pride Month celebration by taking a look at films from queer cinema. This week will be our last week of queer cinema, where we're reviewing Wong Kar Wai's Happy Together, Gregor Rocky's Mysterious Skin, and then finishing it off with Pedro Almodovar's Bad Education. Uh, coming up the following week, we will be taking a look at three Indiana Jones films, Temple of Doom, Last Crusade, and Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, as the potential fifth and final Indiana Jones movie drops in theaters. Our next episode of the podcast, we will be reviewing the Sundance uh, film The Angry Black Girl and Her Monster, as well as taking a look at Sleepless in Seattle on its 30th anniversary. Uh, If you enjoy all the things we do on the podcast and on our website, we would encourage you to support us on Patreon. We have lots of reward levels and goals we're working towards, and we want to thank our current Patreons, or patrons, uh, Morphine, who donates at the sneak preview level, and Becca and Matt, who donate at the writer's room level. You donate at the writer's room level or higher, you get to pick a movie every month for us to watch and review, so that's a little bonus that you get, along with some other things, including uh, patron-exclusive podcasts that you can only get if you're a member. Well, until next time, keep listening. Thank you.